Today's scripture reading is from Romans 15, 1 through 13, and you'll find it on page 949 in your Bibles. So let's read the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and all believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, may you speak to your people today. May your spirit actively work through the reading and the proclaiming of your word. Lord, that you would do heart work on us, that you would encourage us, that you would equip us, that you would challenge us, that you would shape us, Lord, that if there are areas of repentance that are, that are needed, that you would, Lord, you would reveal them to us and compel us to come and wash ourselves by your grace. And Lord, if there are things that, and I'm sure there are, God, there are active applications that you want us corporately or individually to take, Lord, that you, you would reveal those to us as well, that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word, Lord, that you would get glory, that your name would be glorified, magnified, lifted up and praised in our city, and that, Father, we as a church would be mature. Thank you for your son who has promised to us that what he begins, he will complete. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 15. Uh, we're going to actually be looking at part of 15 today and, and part of, of chapter 16 today. The title of the message is Gospel Transformed Love. Pleasing your neighbor, not yourself. Uh, so this ought to be good and a little convicting, I would think, for most of us. We have a tendency to like to please ourselves, and so the Word of God needs to work on us in this one this morning. You know, we've been saying for several weeks now that the book of Romans has a hinge in it. There's a turning point uh, where it really takes place in about chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of the book we've been saying is, is if we could title it or summarize it, you would say, this is what the gospel is. Right? It's, it's the message of the gospel. It's a, it's a clear understanding of, of what the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection means. And then you get into chapter 12, and, and it changes over to this is what the gospel does. And so it's about what the gospel, how the gospel transforms those who place their faith in Jesus to live out, as we've been talking so much about, the norms of the kingdom. To be kingdom people who live out the, the kingdom rules and the kingdom uh, lifestyle. Is this thing scratching me or is it back there? No? All right. Um, we'll, we'll, hopefully it'll go away. 
so here we are. We're in chapter 15. We're, we're at the end of, of the book at this point. So we're very clearly in the thick of the this is what the gospel does section of the book. This is the application part of the book. And I think it would be helpful for me to say at this point what should be quite obvious. And that's this. Spending time talking about what the gospel does is a complete waste of time unless we actually seek to live it out. Right? I mean, we're spinning our wheels here unless we're desirous of God's transforming work to be evident in the way that we live. And that we're willing to say, Lord, we want to step into this by your grace, but with grace-driven effort to walk accordingly. If we're not committing to say we want to obey the word and, and live out the gospel, we're wasting our time. It's like the example of the foolish lumberjack that I, I gave last week. If you were here, remember that? He's got a chainsaw, but he's, he's trying to saw trees with it like he's using a handsaw. Right? He's, he's wasting his time, not because he doesn't have the power that he needs available to him, but because he lacks the awareness of the power that is available to him. And it's the same way with us and our understanding of the gospel. If we understand the power of the gospel that's available to us through Jesus and through the power of his indwelling spirit within us, which is, again, what chapters 1 through 11 was all about revealing to us, then the application of that power, chapters 12 through 16, will have a great effect in not only changing us, but changing our world, changing our community, changing the city, changing the world around us as we go and we live out that power, as we trust in it to do what it can do to make new human beings. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, we're just exhausting ourselves, wasting our time trying to saw trees with a chainsaw. And so what I want you to get as we, as we finish up the book of Romans today and, and next Sunday is that fortunately for the world, the Roman Christians understood the power that was available to them through the gospel. They lived this out. And the fruit of that is evident even now. Because the foundations of the church were built on their obedience to the word as the gospel was transforming them. Listen to, to just some examples of this. Within just a few years of Paul's writing this letter to the Roman church, there was a man named Clement who served as the bishop of Rome. You've, perhaps you've heard of him. There, there's a big church in Lincoln Park called St. Clement, right? Um, he was serving as that bishop from about the year 88 to 99 A.D., if you look over at Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, I think he's the one mentioned in that verse by name. So he was a, a student of Paul. He was a student of Peter. Um, and he lived here in this, this city that Paul is writing into just, just a few years later as, as a leader of the church. Here's how he describes a person who has come to know Christ. This, this is how he describes the people around him in the Roman church. He says this. He says, he impoverishes himself out of love. He, he, in other words, he empties himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. So I'm willing to go all in and, and be weak myself in order to bear your poverty, especially if I know that I'm able to somehow stand up under that with more strength than you can, I'll do it. That's what he's saying. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. That's a beautiful picture. In the church. Justin Martyr, also in Rome just a few years later, he lived from about 100 to 165 AD. He, he painted the picture of Christian love this way. 
And, he's, and he says it referring to himself and, again, those around him. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. Another generation or two passed. It was clear that Roman society took note of the way that the Christians were living in the church in their midst. Tertullian, living between 155 and 240 AD, reported that the citizens of Rome, upon seeing the church, would exclaim out loud, see how they love one another. Wouldn't you want 21st century Chicago to say that about us? What, what kind of amazing impact would it be if our neighbors, as we walked in front of them, as we lived in front of them, said out loud, wow, look at the love you have. How did that happen in Rome? It happened in Rome. How? In great part, it happened because the early church in Rome took the words that we're going to read this morning, the words that Isaiah just read to us, they took them to heart. And they lived out what they heard. Let's look at it again. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's an amazing paragraph. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful paragraph. And in it we see really three things. You see a command. You see a gospel-centered underpinning for that command. And then you see a result. Right? The command is in verses 1 and 2. Again, it basically is don't please yourselves. Right? Don't please yourselves, but please your weaker brother. Bear the burdens of your weaker brother. Bear the burdens of your neighbor so that you might please them rather than you. And again, it's, it's Paul giving this, this uh, antithesis to our natural bent. Because the natural bent of humanity is to seek our own good. It's to please ourselves rather than to please our neighbor. In fact, we're really good at wanting to tear down our neighbor. And he spent a lot of time in chapter 14 talking about how that isn't reflective of who Jesus is or what his people ought to be like. We're to bear with one another, even in our weaknesses, for the purpose of building up one another in love. Why is that so important? Well, again, it, it's, it, it's, it's the antithesis of, of, our, of our bent, and our bent is to say, you know, I want to please myself because, here's the, here's the heart motive behind self-pleasing. If I can tear you down, I can make myself feel better about who I am, right? I, I mean, I know I've got my own problems, but if I can find more problems in you than I have found in myself, which is kind of ridiculous, I don't know how anyone could possibly do that, Right? But if I can deceive myself into thinking I found more problems in you than I have in myself, then I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. And, and, the, and the, the sin in that kind of attitude is that it denies the power of the gospel by saying, my righteousness is based on how good I am. So I'm going to prove my righteousness to myself by demonstrating that I'm better than somebody else. 
That's the heart of legalism. And it's the heart that is hardened by this deceitful desire to say, I must earn God's favor. I have to prove my worth. I've got to make my own way into heaven. Regardless of what Jesus did on the cross, that doesn't seem to matter to me. I've got to prove that I earned it. It's a complete denial of the gospel. So here's Paul saying, look, don't live that way precisely because of the gospel that you have. Jesus died to to pay your debt. He took your unrighteousness away. You don't have to prove any longer that you're better than anybody because you're secure. In fact, not only do you not have to prove that you're not better anybody, no longer desiring to please yourself, but it frees you now up to seek to build them up because that's exactly what Christ did for you. And that's the second part of the the paragraph here. There's the gospel-centered underpinning behind the command not to please ourselves. Verses three and four. Jesus didn't please himself. He had, unlike you, every right to please himself. He could have easily come and said, you know what, I am better than all of you. He would have been right. And he could have just cast judgment on all of us righteously because of it, but that's not what he did. He emptied himself. We're quoted here, Psalm 69, which says this, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Another way you could say that is the the accusations that were against you, the accusers of you were brought on me. I took the accusation for you. Again, an, an amazingly remarkable thing because there was nothing in Jesus that was worthy of accusation. He's perfect in his righteous obedience to the Father in every way, and yet he took every accusation that you deserved on himself that he might bear it and die for it and put it away. He absorbed it in his strength. He absorbed the burdens of the weak, of you and of me, for our benefit, that we might be made strong in his strength. And by the way, there's an aside here that Paul gives after he quotes from Psalm 69 in verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. He's basically saying, look, I just quoted scripture for you. Here's an aside. Read Read the scriptures. Because when you read the scriptures, everything that was written in there was written for your encouragement. As you endure in pressing on in this life and you look back to the scriptures, in there you find the hope that points to Jesus and the reminder that Jesus took the accusations for you. So your hope is found in in studying the word of God because the word of God is centered on the the person and the work of Jesus. I think that's what verse 4 is there to say. It's just kind of an aside. But here's the command, don't please yourselves. Please your weaker neighbor. Here's the gospel underpinning. Jesus modeled that for you. He didn't please himself, but he bore your accusations. And the result, result if, if we live in and because of Jesus, is verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that sentence because I, I, hear, I hear music in it. Do you notice the language that's used in that? There's this word harmony. There's accord. There's, there's this idea of, of one voice and, and togetherness. It's like a chorus or a symphony. He's saying when, when we when we recognize what Jesus has done for us and we seek to live as Jesus has because he's freed us to do it, it brings about beautiful music in the church. We, are, we live in harmony with one another. And I said this a couple weeks ago because Paul used this word earlier in the text. The, the idea of being in harmony with one another does not simply mean that you get along. It doesn't simply mean that you tolerate one another. And I think we use that word sometimes in our, in our modern context to kind of mean nothing more than just that we get along. Yeah, you know, it's cool. Everything's in harmony right now. 
It means far more than that. Think musically. It's beautiful. When, when harmony is going on, there is two different parts coming together to produce one beautiful sound, right? And he's saying that's the kind of, of, of self-giving love that I'm calling you to give to one another, that when you live together in this kind of unity, it's beautiful. And it only works in accord with Jesus Christ. It means that 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 harmony, that music that you're making, it's beautiful because it reflects who Jesus is and what he has done, and Jesus is the definition of beauty. But at the same time, there's this idea here that, that it's not possible outside of Jesus Christ. You can only make that kind of beautiful harmony, to, harmony together in unity because there's a center of gravity that's holding everything together. In other words, unity for the sake of unity doesn't really work. Because there isn't a center of gravity. But when Jesus is the center of gravity, worship becomes the center. And it's that worship together that produces that singular direction. Even though there's different voices, we're told here that we come together and as one voice, we give praise and bring glory to the Father. That's what church unity is all about. It's, it's got to be a gospel-centered unity that seeks to, to, to love one another in the way that Christ has loved us so that by our lives, it's no, it's no accident that the Roman citizens could say, look at how they love one another because if it's actually being displayed in a way that, that shows Jesus to the community, it's beautiful. It sings. So again, the command is repeated at the end. So welcome one another. Welcome one. Don't, don't find ways to, to divide yourselves by looking at how you can be better than one another. Serve one another in such a way that you welcome each other in as brothers and sisters to make music that paints a picture of Jesus. Key idea. Okay? I'm going to come back to this a couple times, but this is, this is the key idea of that whole thing in a nutshell, and it's the key idea of the rest of the chapter, is that the gospel, okay, and again, by gospel, I mean Jesus' self-sacrificing service of us. The king left his throne in heaven to come and dwell among sin sinners to die the death we deserved. He paid the debt. He rose again. He applied his righteousness to us by faith, right? That's the gospel. The gospel motivates and empowers believers to give themselves away in service of their neighbors. Jesus did it for me, right? I must do the same for others. It compels and motivates us. And the strong have a particular obligation to bear with the weakness of the weak in that service. Now, we'll flesh this out a little bit more, but here's something I want to say as we move on. A cardinal rule of Bible study is that anytime you look at a text, anytime you look at a passage, there's always and only one valid meaning of that text, okay? There's one thing that the author intends to say, and I think that's the intended meaning behind what Paul's just written, all right? That's the one meaning. However, there's lots of applications of that one meaning, all right? And so what I want to do now is, is I want to kind of expand our thinking a little bit here. And, and let's, let's use what's written in the text to help direct us to some broader application of how this gets fleshed out in the church. All right? So we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about a few categories by which self-emptying gospel unity should be demonstrated in the church. All right? The first one is this. It's theologically and doctrinally in the non-essentials, and I'm actually not going to spend much time on this because this is exactly what we talked about last week, all right? But I think that when he says here in verse 1 of chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, again, he's bookending everything that he said back in chapter 14 was this, in the church, there's strong faith and there's weak faith. Strong faith is that which understands the power of the gospel and knows that non-essentials don't affect you're standing before God. 
Weak faith gets bent on non-essential things sometimes and, and feels like it, it, we have to do certain things in order to please God. And therefore, if others aren't doing it, we, get, we can get really anxious and we can get real angsty and we can be demanding upon them that they, they act a certain way, that they do certain things. And Paul's saying, that's actually weak faith. Because the gospel simply says it's faith alone that justifies. All right? So we can, we can fight over non-essential things and we're to be united theologically and doctrinally in essential things and not worry about the non-essentials. I'm just going to say that if you want to find out more about what that means and you weren't here, go back and listen to last week's sermon. It's online, all right? But that's within the church. It's verse 2 of chapter 15 that leads me to think that there's something broader that Paul now has in mind. Because in verse 2 he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And while that certainly applies to relationships within the church, he's not just simply saying, let each of us seek to please or to build up our brother or sister, but he uses this word neighbor. And in, in using the word neighbor, I think he's thinking more outside of the church. He's including the church, but he's thinking just in general, as you live, believers, in your strong faith, Exhibit this kind of love and self-sacrificing service to everybody, just as Jesus has done. So the second category that I think he highlights here is this, is that our gospel unity ought to be displayed in the way that we live generously. And I think specifically he's talking about finances. The way that we use our finances to build up and to strengthen the weak among us. And I'm getting that primarily from verses 24 to 27. Look down there. He says to the church in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however... I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, in a nutshell, what, what he's saying here is that some of the Gentile churches that I've already visited have offered to, to send some financial help back to the church in Jerusalem. At this time, the church in Jerusalem was dealing with, we think, a famine. There was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of struggling going on there. And so when other churches heard about what was happening in the Jerusalem church, he says they were pleased to say, Paul, take some of our finances and go and, and help them and support them. And, and he talks about a motive here that, that they ought to do that because it was the Jerusalem church from which all of the church planting efforts went out into the world in the first place. They stand on the shoulders of the church of Jerusalem. So they benefited spiritually from these people and they're saying that the least we can do is we can bless them back materially in their time of need. This is something that I think is difficult but needs to be emulated by the church. Difficult in the sense that it's one thing to, to be aware of needs within your own church family. And I think oftentimes when we're aware of needs within our church family, it, people gen, tend to rise up and, and try to meet those needs. That's a good thing. But, but here we have a, a situation where a local church is looking outside and saying, far off in another area, Christians are struggling there. How do we meet that need? And that's a, that's a harder thing to do because there's not necessarily relationship there that prompts the desire to help, right? These people didn't probably know anybody in the Jerusalem church, but here's what they did know. They did know this, we have a common unity in Jesus Christ. We're brothers and sisters, even if we don't know each other by face or by name. And so they, what's that? Yeah, well, we are, aren't we, in Christ, right? And that's the point. That's the point that he's getting at here. L listen to this. This is another way in which this played out uh, in, in, in Rome, all right? This is from the third century, 
And uh, this is something that I, I found at earlychurch.com. But there was, a, there was a pagan actor who became a believer. But he realized that he had to change his employment because most plays at that time and in that place encouraged immorality and uh, pagan idolatry. Now, I say that knowing that I know there's several actors in, in, in this audience. Um, don't, this isn't a personal thing on you, I promise. But think about it. In, in, that, in that culture, that's, that's what the plays were doing. There was a lot of, of real obvious pagan idol worship and, and practice going on. And so this, this actor feels convicted. I have to change my profession. I can't continue to do this anymore. So he considers establishing an acting school to teach drama to non-Christian students. It's like, I, that's, that's the only skill I have. I don't want to participate in the theaters, but at least I can teach my skill to others in the community. However, he first submits his idea to the leaders of the church for their counsel, and the leaders told him that if acting was an immoral profession, then it would be wrong to train others in it. All right, so his, his, his church leader said, no, we don't think that's a good idea. But they wrote to Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage, for some more counsel. Now, here's where the story gets really interesting. Cyprian tells this neighboring church that they should be willing to support the actor if he had no other means of earning a living, just as they support orphans and widows and other needing, needy people. So he's saying, look, if, if this guy can't continue to do what he's doing, and you've affirmed that he shouldn't, you need to support him. But then he says this, if your church is financially unable to support him, he can move over to us and here receive whatever he needs for food and clothing. Now, Cyprian and his church didn't even know this actor, right? And yet, they were willing to support him because he was a fellow believer. That's amazing love. That's an amazing display of gospel unity. And as one Christian told the Romans, we love one another with a mutual love because we just don't know how to hate. Now, if, if Christians today made that kind of statement to the world, would the world believe it? I think they would. The love of the early Christians wasn't just limited to those within their own churches. Christians also lovingly helped non-believers as well. They, they helped the poor. They helped orphans. They helped the elderly. They helped the sick. They helped the shipwreck. They even helped their persecutors. There's lots of, of, of historical documentation of that kind of self-sacrificing service in those early churches when they lived in a, in a society that truly hated them. Some of these names that I just read to you were killed by the Romans because of their faith. Some of their society just outright hated them, and yet others were saying, there's something different about you. The love that you have. And within just a couple of centuries, the whole empire was given over to the, the following of Christianity. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully persecute you and use you. And the early Christians accepted that statement as a command from Jesus, not just an ideal that couldn't really be lived out, it was a command, and they believed it. Jesus said it. We can do it, and he'll bless it. I want to encourage us to, to prayerfully consider that as a church. Um, there's a way in which uh, we might be able to do that fairly immediately. And I'm investigating it together with the elders. But, uh, you know, the... The alderman's office is trying to figure out how do we, how do we actually serve the homeless people in our community? You, you've probably seen all these viaducts uh, over, over Lakeshore Drive, right? Under, or should I say under Lakeshore Drive, the homeless encampments that are growing by the day. And the desire there, I, I, I believe, isn't to say how do we get rid of the homeless people in our community. The desire there is to say how do we serve them? How do we help them get roofs over their heads 
How do we help them get furnished apartments and job training and that kind of stuff? Not to relocate them, but to keep them in the community and help them in the community. If the church hears about an activity like that going on in our own neighborhood, I feel compelled and obligated to say, we have to figure out how can we help, right? Not just for the sake of charity, but because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us and a perfect way for us to communicate to a community what the love of Christ is like. Do you remember a parable I gave to you guys a few months ago? I wrote a little parable specifically about those living under those overpasses on Lakeshore Drive and using it as an example to talk about how the grace of God comes and meets us there and invites us into his penthouse apartment. That, that when you hear something like this, you think, there it is. Like in real life, it's happening. There's a way for the church to get involved and to help and to show the love of Christ. And we can show that love, we can show what Jesus is like sacrificially by giving generously. And I think particularly that means through our finances in order to demonstrate Christ-likeness. That's, that's the second thing. The third thing is we should be displaying sacral, sacrificial gospel unity equally. Equally. And by equally, I mean this, by overcoming the isms, racism, classism, ethnocentrism, ageism, sexism. How am I getting that? Well, I'm actually getting that when I look at chapter 16. When I look at chapter 16, I see a long list from verse 1 down through basically verse 16, and then it kind of picks up again at the very end of the book, list of names. And if you look through that list of names, and maybe we'll spend a little bit more time on this next Sunday, but you get this picture the church in Rome was an incredibly diverse place. Some of those names are obviously male, and some of those names are obviously female. Some of those names are, uh, are Hebrew-sounding. Some of those names are certainly Gentile-sounding. Some of those names have links to uh, nobility, royalty, if you will, names that, that probably were names that were associated with government officials and serving in, in, in you know, basically the courts of the emperor. And some of those names and some of the stories that we know behind those names are obviously very common people. Right? But you have this, this cross-section of people of all ages, of all races, of both genders, and of all socioeconomic types, and we see that they're living together in this one church family and together, they're being taught to display this unity of love in Jesus Christ because they have a new identity that supersedes their race, their class, their gender, etc. They are now in Christ. And so Paul is giving this example here, and I think he makes a very specific case of it even in chapter 15. We look at verse 8 through 13. I had Isaiah read this earlier. He's reminding them of the racial element of the unity that Christ has brought about. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. He's talking about the Jews. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So Jesus came for the Jews in order to confirm that what God had promised them was true. He served them. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as is written, this is Old Testament stuff, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles to sing your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, the Jews. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He's reminding them, you two, you two groups of people in this very church used to be completely divided by race. And you don't have to, you don't have to work too hard to figure out that, that there's an implication there that they didn't like each other. Did Jews like Gentiles? No, right? And yet... 
Here, by the reconciling power of the gospel, they're brought together as one people. And he's saying, God had this in mind all along. Remember the Old Testament promised this. This is what the gospel would bring about. And so when we divide ourselves by race or by class or by, an, or by ethnicity or by age or by sex, we're, we're saying something, we're communicating something to the world. We're saying, look, there are structures of power that exist in the world. And so we're trying to put ourselves in the categories that give us power over the weak. That's what classism is all about, right? There's, classism exists because some people have power and they want to keep it by putting other people down. And that exists among races and exists among genders. And Paul's saying, look, the gospel undoes all of that. It undoes all of that. He brings unity universally to one people and calls them family. Can I give you a practical example of a way that this could play out? I'm going to actually use the example of ageism. And this is born out of a conversation that I had earlier this week. Um, I'll be specific about this. Marvin Doris Dirksen. You know, they sit in the back. They used to sit in the back. Marvin hasn't been able to come to church for a while because of his health. Uh, and by the way, that said, I got a phone call from her yesterday saying that he took a turn for the worse yesterday, and uh, now he's, he can't even leave his bedroom. So I think it might be the beginning of the end for our brother Marvin. Um, but as I went over there on Thursday to spend some time with them, um, one of the things that, that, that Doris lamented to me was how, how, how lonely it is. Um, because this generation of the church, this is going to sound like a rebuke on you, and I, I don't mean it to, but this generation of the church, unlike previous generations of the church, because I think of cultural, the way we were brought up culturally, uh, we're far more individualistic than previous generations used to be. And so in previous generations, when there was a known issue or a problem, people came over. People called. People showed up. They brought food. Our generation, we're not used to that. We send a text message. And that might be it if we do that, right? And I, and I think it's a cultural thing. I'm not, I'm not condemning you all as, and I'm including myself, it's my generation. I'm not condemning us of being unloving per se, but, but, it, but it's a difference of, of culture that affects this issue, I think, of ageism. When we don't deny our own cultural bents to minister to others, weaker others, our senior saints, who, who many of them need help, we're not displaying the self-sacrificial love of Christ like we ought to as the church. That should make us countercultural. Does that make sense? So I want to encourage us in these things. Look for, look for power structures that exist. Look for differences that exist because of the way the world functions and say, how does the gospel overcome that? And seek to demonstrate how the gospel has overcome those things. That's what it looks like to demonstrate the love of Christ in the way that we live. The gospel ought to call us out of our comfort zone. Right? It, ought to, it ought to make us deny our desire to surround ourselves with those who are like us and put us in the category of loving others because, again, that's what Jesus has done for us. One, one last note on that. Notice that, that sacrificial love and unity in Christ doesn't do away with those differences. You don't see the, the, the Scriptures calling for a, a doing away of ethnicity, a doing away of of gender, a doing away of even socioeconomic classes. It's not doing away with those things. It's saying overcome the sinful power structures in those things in ways that demonstrate that you can serve and love others even through those differences. So that's the third one. Fourthly, we must display sacrificial gospel unity guardedly. And that means this, no divisiveness. Look at chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. 
I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So he's saying, look, as I've been talking to you about what it means to bear the, the, the burdens of the weak, to demonstrate gospel unity, to sac- sacrificially serve one another, be really careful of divisiveness in the church. Divisiveness meaning this. It is, it is basically, it's rooted in selfishness, which is the opposite of sacrificial service. When, when somebody steps in and, and, and wants to be divisive, it's usually because they're saying, I want my way, my agenda, my comfort to be upheld in this particular area, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a stick in the mud and make sure it happens. Right? It's the opposite of everything that he's been talking about. And it's, it's, it's wrong because it's, it's motivated not by security in what Christ has done to secure us. It's motivated rather by fear and by control and by a sense of devastation when we're faced with loss. That's when divisiveness raises its ugly head. It's, it's if I lose this, if my agenda doesn't make it here, it's going to devastate me because without this, I don't have security. And Paul's saying, you forget everything we talked about so far in Romans? Your security is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have nothing to lose in him. You've already gained everything in him. You can't be undone in Jesus. So when you're divisive, you're declaring to the world somehow that you believe that you can be undone. And so he says, guard this. Don't let it rear its ugly head. This will ruin the gospel witness of Jesus in the church. In fact, have nothing to do with people like this. It's a serious thing because it blows the witness of Christ in the church. And finally, he says this. Display your sacrificial gospel unity confidently. Here's here's why we can so confidently do these things. Here's why we can so confidently turn away from that selfish desire that would bring about divisiveness. Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Again, it's that reminder that Jesus has already secured the victory. Jesus has already undone the power structures of selfishness in the world, and he will come back to complete the task. It's a done deal. He will crush Satan under his feet. You have nothing to fear. That's important application because that's the part we forget. Right? I, 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 can, I can look through all this text. I can go back over these sermon notes and I can say, okay, we're, we're, we're called to, to, to give sacrificially in all these different ways and I, I want to make sure I do that. But somewhere along the line, I'm going to forget that this is true, that Jesus has already destroyed the power structures and I'm going to think I have to hold on to something here. I have to hold on to this over here because my security is wrapped up in it. I can't let this go. I need that to feel secure. And Paul's saying, Jesus undid it. And he's coming back. Satan's over. The worldly power structures are over. Give freely, safely, securely. You have nothing to lose. You've already gained everything in Jesus Christ. This is that key idea again. The gospel... Jesus' self-sacrificing service towards us motivates and empowers Christians to sacrificially give of themselves in service to their neighbors. It motivates and empowers us to do it. And the strong have a particular obligation to bear with the weakness of the weak in that service. That's all true and it can be lived out and believed because in Jesus we have a whole new perspective on power and security and fear.
perfect love casts out fear. Gospel power to overcome Satan and selfishness casts out fear. We need to be reminded of that. Praise God that Jesus gave himself away for us. In our weakness, where would we be without without his sacrificial offering to us? Where would we be? How scared would we, would we be right now when we, when we look at election 2016 or Brexit and we think, oh, if this goes wrong, my security, where would we be? Where would we be when, when, when selfishness raises its head in the church and somebody gets, gets really bent out of shape about the kind of music that we're doing or, or the kind of clothing that we're wearing or, or, you know, or, or, or the demand on us to, to give this this pot of money in our bank account to support a brother or sister in need. Where would we be? We'd be fearful. Apart from Christ, because with Jesus, he set us free to love and to serve in self-emptying ways because that's what he's done for us. Church, love one another, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son, as Philippians 2 says, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He certainly could have. He certainly could have held back but rather we're told that he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. Father, he did that so that we would be free. Free from power, worldly power, free from fear, free from our own need of protection and self-aggrandizement for our own self-esteem. God, thank you that you, you, you undid all of that in Jesus. Where We can come humbly and just say we are sinners indeed. We are, we're wrecks. But in Christ, we're forgiven. We're adopted. We're made whole. We are secure. Help us to live that way as a church. Lord, I pray that you would give us prayerful wrestlings with some of these categories that we talked about today. Help us to be challenged in, in, in genuine, tangible ways, Lord, to serve. Help us to be, to be challenged to, to, to find ways to, to give of the abundance that we have in so many ways for the building up and the betterment of others around us. Help us to be generous that way because you're generous because of the generosity of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Compel us there. And Lord, I, I want to pray, even as we've been praying already for day camp, not that, that we would just, um, not that we would just hope that somehow these families would be impacted by your gospel and, and be a part of the community of faith here, but Lord, that we would be actively looking for ways that we could sacrificially give to these families to demonstrate your love and to show them in a tangible way, something that would cause them to say, what kind of love is this? And glorify you. Work on us as a people for your glory, not just for our good, but for the good of, of all around us, that they might see Jesus Christ displayed and glorified. We pray these things in his name. Amen.